Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. In this episode, we take up a variety of topics, including the evolution of corporate compliance programs, Microsoft's OFAC settlement, the multi-million dollar expenses approved at FTX, your email is does not constitute my emergency and other topics. I know you'll enjoy this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance Podcast with me, Christy Grant Hart. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox, and we are ready to talk all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG, governance, and whatever else is on our minds and the minds of the other experts in our field. This week, we're covering the role of behavioral economics in compliance programs, how to manage compliance in chat GPT, lessons for compliance officers from the Microsoft OFAC settlement, and why your email does not constitute my emergency. But first, how has your week been, Tom, and what do you think is the most interesting development? Well, I went to CLE on Trust in the States, and I must say, it doesn't get much better than that. Oh, man, that is the most exciting thing about the week. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. So someone told me, just pay someone to do it, and I think that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Don't worry, if, listeners. We will not be covering the basics of trust law on this podcast. So we did have, I thought, an interesting article from the Ropes and Gray firm about really the evolution of compliance. And when I first read it, Christy, it really struck me. Um, it's it's what I think you and I have literally seen for 15 years. Compliance has evolved and it will continue to evolve. And it's snapshot of compliance circa April 2023 of where we are now. And it I really wanted to talk about this because it would give us an opportunity to talk about the evolution of compliance when I started in sort of 06, 07 of uh, lawyers writing policies and procedures for other lawyers with legal citations and uh, case law and other useless information for business people, really elevating or, or recognizing that that's not how business people do business. Or as my boss from that time period tried to explain to me, you got to give the guy who's trying to do the right thing, who looks up the policy, the information he needs or she needs. And so the article in many ways talked about a key phrase that I use very often that I got from Karsten Tams, and that's the user experience. So what is the user experience? And it starts off in the first section with limit, entitled limitations of traditional tools and they're absolutely right. The tools you and I grew up with are limited now and are limited from getting um, compliance communications 
and training out and then returning or taking back the necessary information to monitor and then move towards a continuous improvement model. So uh, what we what we need to do and what we have done and what we'll talk about throughout this podcast is some of that evolution and not only the things we've seen, but frankly, some of the strategies you've used at Spark Consulting to incorporate these changes into your compliance services, consulting services. So I hope we get a chance to talk about some of the things you guys are doing, which I think is is very exciting. But uh, it's also sort of wrapped around behavioral sciences. And Wei Chen led the discussion about that. She led the clarion call five years ago. She was talking about the behavioral sciences and, and now it's mainstream. And so, and I know you guys have incorporated many of those strategies directly into your consulting services. So for the for really a snapshot in time of where we are, where we were, and where we're going. I thought it was just an excellent article. And if you are a compliance professional, I would urge you to read it to, to really benchmark, maybe not your entire program, but how you think about the delivery of compliance services. So as I said, we'll talk about it kind of throughout this article, but that was really my first kind of opening thoughts that I don't want to say the traditional tools are limited, but we've really evolved past them. So any thoughts uh, from yourself? Yeah, I know, Tom, you were really affected by this article and, and wanted to go in depth in it. So in terms of our normal pace, we usually, I bring up something I've read, you bring up something you've read, but I, I think for your side, you want to go into some of these a bit more deeply. And I think the first section, that limitation of traditional tools, I love behavioral science and fascinated by it. When they were specifically talking about the section on learning and on training and, and talking about that frequently shorter in more bursts, more frequently where the learner gets to decide when and how they learn is really aligned, not just with behavioral science, but also with adult learning theory. So when Spark Compliance was creating our online training game compliance competitor, we worked with Dr. Benjamin Hayes in London at City College, and he worked with us to talk about that. And some of the really interesting things that you can do with a lot of e-learning training is things like allowing people to do it on their own time actually is part of what benefits them. But also a lot of the vendors you'll see now, you can pick the order in which if you're doing say code of conduct training and there's four modules, you can pick the order of which ones you want to do first or last. And little things like that give adults the feeling of agency. And that's the kind of small behavioral science things that we can incorporate relatively easily or understand that that makes a difference to adult learners in how they experience it. Uh, okay. What's your first article, Christy? All righty. So we're going to get in and out of the depths of the behavioral sciences and come to a different kind of depth, which is dealing with Microsoft's OFAC settlement. <clears throat> Apologies for that. This is from Michael Volkoff, and it's part two of his discussion of the Microsoft settlement. And I love this article because it goes into detail about what compliance officers should do and can do in their programs, not just if they have a problem going on. But again, one of the things that's so powerful about enforcement actions is that they tell us what we should be doing. They basically give us the answers. So Microsoft was pretty impressive in this whole thing, honestly. Basically, what they did was they had distributors who were selling to Russian oligarchs and SDNs. And it's important to note that this was prior to all of the recent Ukraine sanctions that was far before that. 
Um, and over a period of seven years, they managed to sell more than $12 million in software being exported from the U.S. to these SDNs or blocked periods. They found this when they were doing their own self-initiated investigation, essentially what they call the look back. They performed this investigation, voluntarily self-reported, and then went into updating that whole sanctions compliance programs. And that resulted in something I thought was kind of amazing, Tom, a $3.3 million joint penalty. That, that seemed very, very low to me. Their remediating actions were a veritable like bingo of compliance actions. So if you get out your card and you got your stopper, improving governance check, requiring contracts to be cleared by a high-risk deal desk for Russia, check. Implementing an end-to-end screening process with recurring screening, check. Additional training, check. Um, And this one I thought was interesting. They hired additional internal investigators to review and research potential SDNs when third-party hits identified by software require a person. So lots of help. And the last one I thought was really interesting. They adopted a three-line of defense model for the program. Fun fact, Tom, I'm sometimes asked about this and everyone thinks that this is just everyone has it, right? And the answer is no, some do and some don't. But the fun fact is that it was developed by KPMG in the 90s for HSBC Bank. So the the three line of defense is the first line is the business, they own compliance. The second line is compliance, legal, and the functions that give the guardrails and the program. Third is internal audit that checks it. Isn't that interesting? So what do you think? I think that... um, I think Microsoft did a great job with this remediation and that their fine and self-disclosure is trying to send a commentary to the market, especially since this is related to Russia specifically, not the most recent ones, but it's still Russia. Tom, do you think that's an accurate representation of what OFAC was trying to do with this settlement? So I looked at this in a little bit different light. In my last corporate position, I was general counsel and chief compliance officer, and for my sins, I was appointed export control officer. Uh, And so I had to learn export control. And uh, this was in the energy industry. A large part of our business were uh, what was called spares. It was spare parts and parts to engage in routine maintenance on structures on offshore oil rigs. And it pretty quickly became clear to me, we had no idea who the end user of these spares were. We had distributors who were selling our products across the globe, and we had no idea. And that meant I had to learn the ECCN classification system because I had to see if we were selling military grade or other materials, uh, which was a, a journey in and of itself. But the that basic lesson is what I saw here in the Microsoft case, and it really led me to want to explore with you, Christy, we, we talk about, obviously, distributors in an FCPA context. This is an export control context. But I'm beginning to think distributors or the, that type of business model may be more or, at least, more or at least as high risk as third-party commissioned agents. Because with a third-party commissioned agent, you are shipping your product to a third, to another purchaser. So you at least have some visibility into that. But with a distributor, you don't have any. And unless you have the right to get an end user certificate or something else, you may never know where your product is going. And so Microsoft ran into that problem. Now they corrected it. This was, as you said, a long time ago, and they self-disclosed and corrected it. So kudos for that. But 
I'm beginning to think we need to talk about distributors in a higher risk vein than we typically do. Uh, I've also was in the legal department of a software company, and that's a standard software company model um, in, in most of the world. So if you are selling in Europe, if you're selling in the Middle East, if you're selling in APAC, uh, your stuff may be going places that are sanctioned or that the U.S. government is watching. And it can be as simple as a Word doc program, and that's going to get you in trouble. So I would, when I read this, what struck me was compliance professionals need to look at their sales models and see if they're using distributors. Uh, this is all wrapped around an issue that I faced way back then, which was we all assumed if you're a distributor, you're taking risk of loss and title. So not my problem. Well, guess what? It is your problem. And Microsoft proved that. To, to the last point you raised around the the relatively low fine and penalty, I'm going to contrast that with the announcement this week by the Department of Commerce that if you don't self-disclose now, you will get an uplift in your penalty. Uh, that's very different from saying you won't get a discount. Mm. So Treasury is very, and Commerce, are very serious about export control violations and you as a compliance officer, if you have an export control director, you may need to go down and talk to them, but you need to look at your distributor model and see if there are any possibilities that what happened to Microsoft or what happened to me way back when could be happening to you now because you, you may find um, the Taliban are using your software, hardware, or anything, and the U.S. government will not... Get, cut you much slack anymore. I think it's it's incredible because I, I love everything you just brought up. Nearly all of our clients, even when you're still talking about any bribery risk, they say, well, the, the distributor is responsible for the distributor's business, right? Hold on, step back for a minute. If we're adding another layer of challenge, I think one of the things that, that the clients are always struggling with is at what point is it just more cost effective for me to set up my own office there? And if that risk balance shifts again from not just the bribery element, but the export control and the sanctions and the SDN and the, all the rest of it, at some point, we may actually see a shift away from as many distributor models as we have. It'll be interesting to see. One of the most prescient remarks I heard along those lines was Jay Martin, who was a longtime CCO at Baker Hughes in Houston, said, if you have an agent or a distributor, you have physically someone between you and your customer. There's a business reason not to do it, which you just described. You want to have a direct relationship with your customer. So he was able to use that to articulate to the business people, hey, you want to have a direct relationship with your customer. You don't want to go through an agent. So you're absolutely right. All right. So let's talk a bit more about behavioral science. Let's go back there. Sure. So there were three actions that the article really suggested you take. The first was to simplify process to avoid friction to improve communications, um, and by leaning on Robert Caldini or Cialdini, and then incorporate nudge theory. Let me start with the first one uh, because I know it's it's something that you really appreciate. But to me, it's all about the user experience. And Carson Tams, when he talks about design thinking and compliance, what he talks about is you have a product design with the user with the user, not with the user in mind, then you send it to the user for testing. 
And then you incorporate the user feedback into your final model and deliver that back to them continuously monitoring. And that's moving away from friction. So it's really all about the user experience. And if you in compliance can deliver a compliance solution that not only is going to have less friction or make it less frictionable, that's a word, that's going to turn the head of the business people. And I watched and talked to Microsoft when they were going through their FCPA journey and the process they created. And after the business guys started seeing, hey, this is really not that hard and we're getting more insight. So the first insight they got from the various sales models they were using, which included distributors and included third-party third party commission sales agents was the end user was getting various discounts, 5%, 20%, 50%, and there was no rhyme or reason. And so they, the salespeople saw, I've left money on the table because customer A in one country got 5% and customer A in another country got a 25% discount. So they immediately saw the benefit of having that data centralized in compliance, but it was frictionless for them to get the information. Um, the nudge theory, well-known. I know you've been talking about that for at least five years, maybe longer. Uh, I've certainly been talking about that. And um, C. Aldini's um, book on influence is a seminal book in this field and commended to every compliance professional to read as well. So utilizing behavioral science is a critical way to improve your compliance program, not simply in training and communication, but also as a way to make your compliance program more effective, your business process more efficient, and greater profitability at the end of the day. I, so I love all of the sections in the article about this. And the term friction, I'm, I'm so glad it's finally coming into the compliance world a little bit. The first time I started to read about it was really in kind of studying sales. And there was a perfect example of friction for me this past week. As you know, Tom, I've taken up the aerial silks, the you know getting up and hanging from the ceiling, basically. It's unbelievable fun. But I was looking at a different course and the classes were going through this booking system that was unbelievably difficult. Tiny little print, not mobile dependent, had to put your credit card in before you could even pick your class, like thing after thing after thing. And I thought, my God, could this have any more friction, right? At some point, unless I really, really, really wanted to keep going, I really would have not. And that's the last thing we want. That's friction. That's when people say, forget it. I'm not ordering this thing anymore. And when we're in compliance, sometimes I think we have this vision of, well, they have to do it. So it doesn't matter if it's easy to use, if it's enjoyable, it just, they have to do it. But what we can do instead is to do exactly what you said. If, if we don't have the opportunity to have the person from the business sitting next to us as we develop it, try to do things like single sign-on, try to go through the process yourself as if you knew nothing and see how hard it is, see where those friction points are, see what you can fix. I think that sometimes we can have almost an arrogance about because they have to do it, I can give them whatever I whatever I want or whatever is available to me, as opposed to really trying to tailor it in a way where there isn't that friction. And I, I think it was a really smart way of helping us to think about it in a different light. Friction isn't in a compliance word very much, but we probably should start adapting it to be. So what do you have next, Christy? 
Oh, it's my gift that keeps on giving. It's my FTX. So this one is just, it's just too good. You know, I can't, I can't stop myself from uh, the, the juicy details of terrible. So this one comes from the Wall Street Journal about Sam Bankman Freed or SBF as he is known to his friends and obviously to us in the compliance community. If you aren't aware, he is the disgraced former CEO of XFTX Group, which was a cryptocurrency <coughs> exchange and a hedge fund. And as the investigation continues, there's new details that the compliance and risk failures were even bigger than they thought. So they've now gotten into the internal communications in this part of the reporting. And SBF, the CEO said, quote, we sometimes find 50 million of assets lying around that we lost track of, such as life, end quote. I don't know, Tom, probably not your life or mine, but you know, just happens. <laughs> you were the trust person. You saw that sometimes you lose 50 million. It just happens. Um, my personal favorite though, is that expenses and invoices were submitted on Slack and were approved by emoji. So for those astute folks listening, that qualifies as ephemeral messaging. Ding, ding. Something the DOJ has spoken extensively about in its recent update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs and something we'll chat about a little bit later. Fascinating take on it from the FCPA blog, but we'll get there. Coming attractions. Most egregiously, SBF stated that at Alameda, the FTX's sister company, it was, quote, hilariously beyond any threshold of any auditor being able to even partially get through an audit, unquote, because the records were so bad. Lastly, SBF tweeted about the need for two-factor identification and that, quote, 90% of crypto security is making sure you've done the basics, unquote, except, of course, that FTX didn't enforce the use of multi-factor identification at the firm. So, Tom, we have seen some companies in bad shape in our consulting and legal careers. So if someone came to you with a situation even a little bit like this, where would you tell them to start if they were at a company having these kind of problems? You know, I read this article when it came out and I reread it for our chat today. And the more I thought about it, well, to answer your question, I would probably turn and run away as fast and as far as I could. Yep. But this is just the most childish behavior imaginable. They make Roman on succession look like a business genius. <laughs> and literally the quote you read about 50 million, that, that was directly out of the article. Really? They got to play with $50 million? Where were the auditors? Where were the investors? As I recall, six months... Now, I look eight months before they went bankrupt, there was over $2 billion in investment made. Who is looking at this? At some point, you have to quit giving kids sugar. <clears throat> and nobody did. And as bad as these people were, um, they were allowed to do this by not only a bevy of their own, but a bevy of outsiders who were allegedly sophisticated investors. Um, and the other quote was, um, no one would ever be able to audit. Yep. As far as the approving expenses by emoji, actually that one didn't offend me because I just thought, well, they're using a code and it happens to be an emoji, but th this was just not kids at the grown up table. This was kids given the full meal and just went crazy and nobody was there looking. And how did Sam Bankman-Fried 
Hornswoggle the world for as long as he did. Um, I, I just, I was, all I could think of was, was just a cartoon of kids running around, you know, either lighting their cigars with hundred dollar bills or, or something equally inane. Um, it, it's just almost beyond belief to me. It's going to be such a good movie someday. <laughs> it's going to be. I don't know that I'm offended by approving emo- by emojis on Slack. I'm just I, I just find it so amusing the idea that you get you know a thumbs up or something like that for mi- what was described sometimes as million dollar expense reimbursements. Like, yep, no problem. Okay. All right. Well, let's move back into culture because and behavioral science is getting out of the culture of the SBF world and back into more normal kind of companies. What are, what are we looking at here, Tom? And this was a section, Christy, that I found perhaps the either most important or most useful because mm-hmm. it's something that compliance professionals are struggling with literally to this day, which is a challenge of measuring culture. And they suggested some reflection and, and action points, which I'm going to read. How do you define culture and what impact does this have on the question you're asking? What metrics do you have in place to measure culture? and its influence on compliance in your organization? And how can you use a mix of qualitative and quantitative methods to capture the richness and nuance of your own culture? And I really appreciated this language because I felt like it will help us lead a discussion. Uh, There are some metrics that I've talked about over the years and used, but I think we really need to to come up with a, a broader and richer set. But this section started with listen. And you can't get much better than that when it comes to being a compliance professional, whether you're a CCO, whether you're a 30-day newbie. If you listen, you'll begin, people will begin to talk to you. But this I thought was was really interesting, and it gave me a way to think about maybe some new ideas. And the overall theme of this article about the evolution of compliance or where we needed to be now, or where we are now, rather, I thought this section encapsulated it as best as any other section, and it really was thought-provoking. And I think if we can start this dialogue and start it today, start it at conferences, start it in your blog, my blog, wherever we can talk about it, I think it's going to lead a discussion that's really going to help compliance move to really a, a new level as much as data-driven compliance has given us that ability. I, I I agree with you completely. I think culture measurement is really hard. I I thought one of their examples was really smart. It was talking about the difference between you know, quantitative, which is basically numbers driven versus qualitative, which is experiential and what people tell you. And they, they said, look, it's very valuable to understand how many speak up complaints you get and to look at the trends for those. But you should also try to find someone to give you a narrative of what people think of whether or not there's retaliation. And, you know, I was thinking about ways that you can do that because frequently your culture surveys, if you're lucky enough to do one, they're fabulous and you can get that information, but you're going to want to see if you can find somewhere where there's open text fields to ask people what they think. You can also do things as simple and as a focus group, right? Call some people, get them together, ask them what they think. 
you're never going to get everyone's opinion that way, but that's not really what qualitative is about. It's, it's getting enough depth to understand what the real experience is. So I think that it takes a bit more creativity sometimes to get that information and a bit more trust that you're getting enough opinions to be important. But I do think thinking of it as this dual way of considering culture was a really intelligent way of considering it that they brought forward. So a little email kerfuffle for us. <laughs> I can't, I was, I was basically standing up and cheering for this article. So this comes from the New York Times and author Adam Grant, who I think you probably read some of his books. They're, they're quite famous books. But he had a guest opinion piece titled, Your Email Does Not Constitute My Emergency. And it starts with an anecdote about how he sent his email to a colleague that was going to be at a conference that whole day. And then, and then in the evening, he received a reply that began, sorry for the delay in responding. And Grant thought to himself, like, this is crazy. She was at a conference all day. I didn't need this. It wasn't an emergency. Like, why is she apologizing? And he starts to talk about the madness of the always on, always respond culture. But instead of just complaining, he had really interesting insights about it. So he was talking about how from an emotional perspective, most of us, when someone responds quickly, we go, oh, they care about me. This, I'm important. I am someone they respond to like that, right? But he said, actually, if you just get quick rote responses, it may be the opposite, that people aren't considering what would serve you best or really considering your problem, your question, anything substantive, that they actually should think about it more. And when he finishes with this bemoaning of this trend that I have seen that makes me nuts, especially when it's unsolicited email or from like somebody I don't even know, that then says, bumping this up to the top of your inbox. And he got so mad about it. It was fa fabulous. He basically said, excuse me, I'm in charge of my inbox. You are not in charge of telling me what should be at the top of it. I am in charge of that. And by you trying to take that from me, I'm really not interested in you. And then he said, listen, we all have to remind people sometimes. So instead of bumping this up in your inbox, say something like, just wanted to verify that you've received this because at least at that point, it puts the agency back with the individual. So I just love that. And he finishes with a call to action to kind of make things more sane. I remember, Tom, I don't know if you've had this experience. When I was at in my big lot, Gibson Dunn, we had a partner that I absolutely loved who allegedly slept with her Blackberry on her chest or under her pillow to wake her up to answer emails the whole night long. Ah, we've gone a bit crazy. I know you must have a thought about this. What do you think about all of this? Well, it probably is not going to surprise you to hear I have different thoughts on this. Okay. Um, <laughs> I not slept with my black. You, you bumping this up in my email box? Bumping, I'm going to bump this up. First of all, this is this is actually a direct outgrowth of the pandemic because during the pandemic, we well, I'll just talk about me. I had nothing to do except sit at my computer and beaver away, literally. And so when I got an email in, I answered it right then. So I set expectations of mm -hmm. behavior that if you send Tom an email, he's going to answer it really just like that. And my response to people was, look, if you send me a question and I'm sitting at my desk, I'm going to answer it. I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I'm going to answer your email. Now that's on me. Um, but that behavior has continued post pandemic mm. and the First people I saw the bumping up language were actually comms people and PR people. 
So they, yeah, it wasn't compliance people or it wasn't, you know, clients paying. We're usually more polite than that. (laughs) Yeah. And so uh, I started seeing that a little before the pandemic because I deal with a lot of comms people because of my podcast network. So, but the, the answering that's, and I'm a, a whole lot more offended when someone says, oh, just checking to see I got your email. Well, I got your effing email. Leave me the bleep alone. <laughs> I'm going to answer it when I choose. We're back to I'm going to answer it when I dang well choose to. But yeah, and you exactly. just went to the bottom of the list. So, you know, that I think that's just an outgrowth of where we were when we were all stuck at home. And like I said, you know, my wife and I were there 12 hours a day and just beavering away. And then we'd watch TV at night and We'd go pick up groceries with the, you know, drop off groceries at the at the grocery store and then eat dinner at home. So it it to me it was really an outgrowth of that. I think it's gonna change because of the pushback that this article articulates and people like use Felix about it. <laughs> but um, I really thought it was an outgrowth of of the pandemic and where we were at that point in time. And I don't think that expectation will continue going forward. I think it's interesting. I I don't know if you're on Microsoft too, on the Outlook program where it tells you, hey, this isn't this person's time zone. And I actually, I think it's, that's nudge behavior, right? There we are. Do you wish to send this tomorrow morning? Shall we put this on, you know, <laughs> delayed send? I, 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 you know, I like nudge theory for that. So let's go back to the kind of nudge theory of what we're talking about in our uh, deep dive article. So what is this need for an experimental approach? Their next point. So let me put, sort of the last two together, which was the need for an experimental approach and the importance of a shifting mindset. And to me, Christy, these two encapsulate why compliance is the greatest corporate profession there is. Here it is. You're only limited by your imagination. That's it. You can think of it. You can do it. There's no rules in compliance. Uh, we're not a, a legal profession that's existed since the time of Aristotle. Um, if you've got a new way to do something, if you got a better way to do something, just try it out. And it may not work, but it might work. And or talk to Christy or talk to Joe Murphy or any of those other things you can do to say, hey, what do you think about this? And that's why I absolutely love this profession is we do need an experimental approach. We need that now. And you do have to have the ability to shift your mindset. You and I both came out of a, a legal legal academic uh, structure and then a law firm world and then a corporate world. And things were very different in the general counsel's office. They were very different in private practice. But the flexibility we have as compliance professionals, if you've got a new way to communicate, whip out your iPhone and record something and send it and see if it works. And so the, um, uh, I absolutely agree with that, but I think that's why I think this is the the greatest profession there is. In addition to, I'm really going to get on my hours now, the $3 trillion annually lost by the world of bribery and corruption and the 2 trillion lost by money laundering, $5 trillion lost to the world economy. We get to fight that every day. We get to do it in new and creative ways. I mean, I think of Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley when they said, hey, Tom, can we have a podcast on your network about women in compliance? I'm like, sure. Well, they created this entire network. Lisa's written two books. She's got a column, or Mary has written two books. 
and they have a column or Mary, Mary has a column on CCI, but they have a community called Greg Women in Compliance. And how, how did that happen? They just thought it up. And so whether you are, um, it doesn't matter where you are in terms of the profession, you have the ability to try new and different things. And this article certainly advocates for that. Uh, but I don't think you have to tell compliance professionals anymore, you've got to shift your mind. I think the days of hidebound lawyers doing lawyer things and compliance are long gone. And that it, it's just, I mean, you guys, Spark Consulting, have come <laughs> up with some incredible innovations. You have written books on your own. You've written them in conjunction with others that have been marvelous for our profession in terms of where we can go and how to think through things. I've written books. The number of people who've written books in our profession is growing every day. It is. And it's just uh, an incredible dynamic sea of innovation. So I appreciate them saying that. Hopefully they're not hidebound lawyers that's sitting in the CCO chair who are not um, ready to, to be innovative. But if you or not, you're going to be consigned to the dustbin of history. So I, I really think it's important to note in the fifth piece of that. So you were talking about three and four and five together, which I think is a, a smart way of looking at it. They talked about element of risk with any kind of experimentation. There can be risk and the possibility of failure. And one of the reasons the hidebound lawyer thing is so comfortable is because everyone knows that's what it can look like. And that's accepted. Um, when I was reading about their sentiment that you just have to accept that some things will or won't work and being comfortable with that, it made me think of my mother. Uh, she used to have this thing called a KFO, which stood for Kathy's Famous Outings. And it meant that she'd pick something, no one knew if it was going to be good or not, right? It would be like, I don't know, Easter Bunny costume contest at Y, whatever. And you could go and it could be great or horrible. But because it was put in this context of it's a KFO, you didn't go with expectation, you went with an open mind. So we've adopted that in my house, there are KFOs that are now Christie's famous outings. And I think it takes a little bit of that energy away of the risk. So perhaps if you're going to try to take on some of this behavioral science theory, if you're going to be risky, if you're going to record things on your iPhone to see if it works and get them out there, I think it helps to kind of frame this as an experiment. And maybe even with your executive saying, you know, we're going to try to push the boundary a bit and make this more engaging and more interesting. We'll see what the response is, but allow that space to be there for people to to take those risks. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, it's not going to hurt to fail because you have guardrails in place to protect you. And hopefully your senior management understands that because they're business people and they're used to taking risks and not all risks are successful. So I just think we're in the, the most fabulous profession there is, and there's room for growth, there's room for innovation, and there's room for experimentation. Yeah, well, so I'm going to I'm gonna finish on a slightly more controversial point of view from the FCPA blog. But first, shout out to Mary and Lisa, who I love both so, so much. We love you. You're fantastic. And, and Great Women in Compliance has been a truly beneficial thing for the for the profession and continues to be. So shout out to them. Okay. So the last thing I wanted to talk with you about, Tom, is this article that I found so interesting. It was it basically crystallized a bunch of random thoughts I'd had and couldn't quite put into play of why this is a problem. 
And the article comes from Billy Jacobson and Allen and Overy, and he wrote that new DOJ policies about messaging apps and clawbacks threaten compliance department standing. And what he basically said was that the real life implementation of this ephemeral messaging policy that the DOJ is saying, look, you know, you need to have a policy on WhatsApp slash Signal slash Slack slash Snapchat, whatever it is, the disappearing messages, you need a policy in place basically to collect them and or to not use them and or to have them be auditable or searchable if we come in here. And basically he said that there's so many problems with this, like with the the bring your own device stuff, that this is fraught with privacy issues. That was his language. And that he, the author considers how awful the experience of a compliance officer trying to police people's phones and their conversations would be when they're taking their time away from doing their actual work or investigations to try to manage something that may never come to anything or be in fruition. And he finishes with this great visual where he talks about a compliance officer looking at at an executive and the executive says, I'm sorry, wait, you're telling me that I can't answer my client's WhatsApp message? Like, are you really saying that? And basically, Jacobson finishes with, this is dangerous. You are taking standing away by looking like an anti-business freak, essentially, somebody who's trying to control things that are really uncontrollable in this day and age and violate the expectations of business norms. That's a lot to say. What do you think of this, Tom? Well, first of all, when Billy Jacobson speaks, you have to listen. Because Billy Jacobson was the CCO who got Weatherford through their oil for food and massive FCPA violations. So Billy Jacobson, when he speaks, I always listen. Um, I don't really, having said that, I'm not as concerned as Billy is, but the points he raised are absolutely valid. The DOJ and SEC have not really given us any specifics. And the problems we have right now are as you have articulated, and you really didn't even go into, what about GDPR? Oh, what oh. about you <laughs> yes. know the privacy on your phone? And right now, the only thing I can see is everybody in the the company has a work phone and a private phone. Um, now, if you got ten thousand employees, do the math. A hundred thousand employees, one hundred and fifty thousand employees. How many countries are they on? I mean. Exactly. So that's probably not a viable solution, or it's not a solution that CEOs are going to be willing to engage in. But the DOJ, I mean, the SEC, at $2 billion in settlement the last week of September before the end of the fiscal year in 2022 for companies that actually had policies in place around ephemeral messaging. It's a part of business, and we're going to have to figure that out somehow. Um Because if you find yourself in an enforcement action and people's cell phones start getting imaged, if they can be imaged, because it may be you can't image them because they're personal BYODs. So it's a it's a huge problem. Um, I think it was 2017 or 2018. I was going to Brazil and was booking through a travel agent and she said, oh, just send me your credit card information through WhatsApp. And I was saying, what? <laughs> and that's just how they did business. Okay. And that's how a lot of the world does business. And we're going to have to adjust. So you cannot be Dr. No from the land of no. You cannot be the Department of Business Interruption or Business Denial. We, we 
I would say you, but we are going to have to figure this out. And the quicker we can come up with a solution, uh, the better. There are policies and procedures out there you can draw upon, um, but you're going to have to figure out a way to monitor it going forward. So I don't pretend to say this is going to be easy or simple, but it is going to be something that compliance has to figure out because this is, as you said, a business reality literally across the globe. And when you start to figure it out, make sure you use frictionless applications and you nudge theory people into doing what they need to do because that will make it better, faster, and easier. Right, Tom? Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We look forward to talking to you all again soon. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as Christy and I did recording it and bringing it to you. If you have a question or article you would like Christy or I to look at for an upcoming episode, please email us or you could link to us uh, or send us an IM through LinkedIn. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. 